Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 144 of the Freight 360 Podcast. You got 143 other episodes to check out. And uh, keep sharing us with your friends, keep leaving reviews, keep uh, keep sending your questions. We got three more good ones at the end of today's episode. Today's today's topic is is pretty cool. This is you know, we've had a lot of people recently reach out and ask about they've inquired about how to how to really develop an agent program for their for their freight brokerage and um, I'm going to give you the, uh, the 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 down and dirty, right? Bottom line up front is it's not for everybody, and I'm going to caution you with that. We're going to dig into it because um, you have to be ready for it, and there's a lot that goes into running an agent program. Uh, but that's what we're going to dig through today. Uh, but first, I do want to do a little sports recap here. We're, we're in finals, obviously, still with NBA and NHL. Uh, the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs started this week uh, as of – the 16th today, um, Colorado, the Avs, they won game one over Tampa Bay. Um, so we'll see some more action this weekend in Stanley Cup Finals. NBA Finals, um, three to two right now. Golden State's up, and I th- believe game six is tonight, Thursday. Um, I think Golden State's going to win it, even if I, I think I could see the Celtics taking game six, but I still think Golden State's going to win, win it all. Um, sorry to our friends in the uh, New England area that are big uh, Celtics fans. But that's all I got for, for sports. I mean, football's, football's around the corner. I'm super excited. You know, we're looking at, like, you're, you're like, not even two months out from preseason. Um, good stuff. All right, so agent programs, right? These are, these are we've, you know, we've had plenty of other episodes on, you know, what is an agent program? What's a freight agent versus a W-2 and all that? So we're going to talk about really just developing your program today. So if you don't understand totally what the agent model is, check out the other content. We don't want to spend too much time hitting on the 101 level stuff. Um, but here, here's the thing, right? Agent programs and the agent model has become more prevalent probably in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, because, you know, Folks have wanted to be able to expand their brokerage without having to rely on just the people that live in their geographical area. So they want to, they want to be able to um, contract independent sales reps or sales agents that are 1099 independent contractors to broker freight for their company. You would probably think that it's it grew a lot more during the pandemic, but I think the reality is a lot of people just don't know about the opportunity to be a freight agent. Or if they do, they're, you know, they're afraid they might have a non-compete or non-solicitation clause in their employment contract with their brokerage or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, I think there, there's been, you know, there's probably like 10 dominant companies that have really, really done well in the agent space in the last decade or so. But I think it's been more popular for companies to try and they want to develop their own program. That's where I've seen the difference. Uh, well, I got a list number one at Pierce Worldwide Logistics because you know that's that's the company I run the agent program there. But uh, other big companies that are out there that are that have an agent model, um, Landstar is one of the. They're probably the biggest. They've got thousands of brokers. Um, so Landstar is a big one. You've got companies like Armstrong Transport in Charlotte, um, LDI in uh, Amherst, or no, I'm sorry, Buffalo, New York. 
I used to work there. That's why. And they moved their office. That's why I had to correct myself. Um, you have, um, let's see who else. Uh, who are the other? Global Transfer LTL. Um, you've got Priority One LTL. I mean, they, these LTL ones, they do full truckload as well, but that's they're really known for that. Um, there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. I've heard, you know, I've heard uh, Tallgrass Freight. I've heard tr- uh, Trinity Logistics, um, Ascent Global Logistics. And there's a bunch of them out there that, and so here's the thing. A lot of times these are big companies that have, they have the ability or they have an agent division sometimes, but a lot of times they have other, you know, they might have a big W2 presence as well. So, um, but yeah. I mean, if you're if you're looking to become an agent, you got to give me a shout here and learn about Pierce. But that's you know, we could talk about that you know in, in detail at other times. But yeah, so there's there's big prevalent ones out there, and what so the I think the whole the reason I wanted to bring that up is because these are companies that have been doing it for years, like decades, right? We're talking we're not talking about they started it six months ago. We're talking they've got ten plus years of doing this, and they've learned what works and they've learned what doesn't work. Okay. And they've built the infrastructure and the back office to support a growing network of freight agents for their company, right? Some of them even have recruiters that are actively hunting potential agents to come, you know, come bring them on board and, and recruit them to their organization. So, but you can't grow too fast until you figure out how you need to have your company structured to actually support agents and develop your agent program. And that's what we want to talk about today. So I think. I think what you, you I want to start with here and, you know, if you if you have any questions that you want to pick my brain on, Ben, just that are, you know, give me a, an underhand softball pitch here. I'll, you know, I'll take it away. But I think the biggest thing, you know, folks have to think about is, you know, who's going to be responsible for what? Because I think that the fallacy here is that a broker says, I've got my authority. I'm running loads. I'm just going to bring on an agent and they're going to they're just going to bring business to me. And it's free money, it's free extra money for me. And that's not the case because in exchange for a commission split, they're providing you with something and you're providing them with something. That's why the profits are split, okay? There are certain, th- depending on the, the company, they, they've they decided where they wanna draw that line at, at who does what. So for example, most, well, yeah, I'd say most brokerages will handle claims for their agents. That's not always the case though. Um, some brokerages will, onboard carriers for their agents and some brokerages will enable their agents to onboard their own carriers. There, there's, you know, there's always that split too of who's doing what. Um, another example is paperwork, right? And this is where it's kind of split down the middle. Some brokerages will require the agents to track down paperwork from carriers, where some brokerages will might have a administrative team that's going to track down carriers that have not sent their bill of lading and invoices in yet and call on them. So there, I mean, you have to decide who is going to do what. You know, to kind of recap, we talked about the agent brings what to the table, right? They're bringing business and revenue and profits to the table in exchange for a commission split. And on the flip side, the broker just providing a, a series of services for that agent in, in which return they're gonna keep a percentage. So um, for example, big things that a brokerage is going to provide to the agent. Biggest one is cash flow, right? They become the bank for that agent, right? The agent does not have to float mm-hmm. money. Agent does not have to use a factoring company. The brokerage does all the cash flow. That's going to be invoicing customers. That's going to be paying carriers for them. 
A lot of times it's dealing with the claims, so initiating a claim with an insurance company. Um, it could be it could be providing software. It could that could be a TMS, that could be load boards, it could be a variety of things. But you have to decide as a brokerage what do you want to provide and what do you actually have the ability to provide to your agents? And that's going to be very indicative of the commission split that would be considered fair. Does that make sense? It does. So let's go down through some of the individual tasks, like who's responsible for what, where, and why. Okay, so talking about claims, right? And I know that's every company can be a little different, but walk through like some middle of the road examples of how they can be handled, of what responsibilities might be on the agent side and what are on the brokerage side. So I think it's typically common for the brokerage to manage claims. And reason being the brokerage will likely have a, a person that's considered, you know, maybe a subject matter expert in handling claims. They understand the process. They understand what they have to do as far as paperwork that has to be collected. They understand typical situations and who might or may not be at fault. They understand how to work with the insurance companies for these carriers. Whereas someone that's new as an agent has likely never done that job before, right? They may have been a W-2 and had a claims department. Maybe they were an agent somewhere else and never dealt with claims. Um, on the rare occasion, I have had agents in the past that they they ran brokerages before and they decided to become an agent instead. And they tried to start a claim process themselves and were like, well, like, you don't have to do that. Like We do that for you. And they're like, oh, that's, this is awesome. It's one less headache I have to deal with. So mm-hmm. that's one example right there. And then I want to talk carrier onboarding too. So uh, a lot of brokerages will say, we will onboard your carriers for you, right? We will vet them out. We will send them a packet. We will approve them or disapprove them. Whereas other brokerages might say, we're going to set some parameters in place as far as what is and is not acceptable for a carrier. And then you can onboard them yourself as long as they fall within that realm of parameters. And that could be, hey, they have to have an authority for X amount of days, or they must have you know, acceptable CSA scores of X, Y, and Z, or, you know, Hey, insurance must be this. Their authority must show us this. Um, you know, you name it. So, let me right? ask so you, you can kind of couple try questions. to simplify that process. Couple thoughts that have come up. So how are carrier bases handled amongst agencies and agents? Um, are they a function of, let's go with Pierce. Like if I'm an agent, do I have access to another agent's carriers? Do I have access to Pierce's yeah, carrier so the, base? I mean, think about this. The, those carriers are contracted with the brokerage. Right. Right? They have a broker carrier agreement in place, which means that they can haul loads for that brokerage. So any agent can use any carrier within the company. So right? question, what tends to happen... So at a larger brokerage where we would run into issues would be a, specifically in a tight market, Right. And in a tight market, you have a lot of people often that have a lot of loads that are the same lane, but you don't have enough carriers. So there was always like infighting amongst who owned which carriers, especially for like contract or dedicated freight, right? Like if I've got my carrier that runs most of my loads and let's say for two or three days, my customer doesn't have any freight and another broker sees that, calls my carrier and books them up for the next week, my loads come in three days later and I have no capacity. And that would happen actually pretty often. Do you see that on that side? I mean, I know it's no. obviously much larger companies, but yeah, we don't. Curious. We don't really tend to see that as much. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the relationship is going to be what dictates who that carrier wants to work with. The same thing goes with customers, right? Typically, you know, someone could prospect someone else's customer all day long, but if that customer is happy with their current broker, they're not going to go work with somebody else. And I think the same thing goes with carriers. But again, that's a decision that as a brokerage owner. 
you've got to make on how you want to divvy up who can use which carriers at which times and who can work with which customers. So well, that also, so how's that handled? Because that's before we just go into another one, like you just yeah, brought so another I mean, great one. So, like, how are prospects handled? Because that's the biggest issue at large W 2 brokerages is like, you yeah. might be the best salesperson in the world, you might be hungry, hitting the phones, but you might not be able to get really good prospects in your name in some cases. So, I'll tell you, most agent based companies are smaller than your big box brokerages. Not all, but most are. So you run into it less, and I would tell you that probably most agent-based companies will will do what's called um, account protection or customer protection, and they they will tell you that if you have an active customer, as long as you move a load within X amount of days, they will remain protected to you, and no one else can can prospect them or move a load for them. And examples of that time length, I've seen companies that offer a month, and I've seen companies that offer up to a year. And then all kinds of variations in between. Um, and then there's other companies that, you know, they'll look at it on a case-by-case basis because they don't have that much of an issue with it. So, like, with us at Pierce, um, you know, it's t- like it's tough. So, we, we don't run into a, a whole lot. But when we do, we're going to look at this, this specific situation in detail and say, you know, who is working with this customer right now? And if someone else wants to work with them also because they had previous history with them – is there a way for both agents to work with this company and not overlap or step on toes or cause internal competition? If the answer is yes, then we will try to make that work. But at the end of the day, if let's say, let's say I'm an agent and I'm working, I've got a customer that has four branches and I'm, I'm in two of them and I'm trying to get into the other two. I'm probably not going to want someone else to touch the other two. You know, we would look at that at a case by case basis, but let's say it's, a company that's got 70 locations and one agent's only working with one of them, well, there's 69 other locations that are being untouched that we may be able to all do better as a company and both agents might be able to get more business because we're servicing the customer better. And that's why we try to look at it instead of just being like, hey, it's black and white cookie cutter. The answer is yes, the answer is no. We, we, actually, we actually think, like we actually put on our thinking cap and look at stuff with a subjective manner. So... But and I think that's huge. A lot of companies will they'll make it black and white. Well, that's huge because I think most of the larger companies opt for themselves. Like they're the most important person in the transaction, the company, or in the way they stre- set up their protocols. Yeah. So what you have is it's a free for all. It's whoever gets to it first gets to it, and they have some guidelines and what you can protect. But for the most part, they're much shorter time windows, 45 days where you can request an extension of another 30. And you have to show proof that you have been making progress or getting some traction with it to get them extended. Because again, there's nothing that used to frustrate me more than when like, because we're constrained as brokers, especially to be able to grow that relationship anyway. So I might have a customer that has, in your example, 25 branches, but I might only be able to add an additional branch like every three months or two months because I genuinely don't have the support. Even though I'm in a big company, I can't just green like 35 new customers in a week or in a month, but yet I'm the one that put the sweat equity in to find the opportunity, to uncover it, to establish the relationships. And it would always frustrate me when somebody would just swoop in and snatch up prospects <clears throat> that fell under, I felt, my relationship. But again, yeah, I and get that's why where I have seen- they do it. I've seen brokerages that will, if they go that route, they'll they'll work out a commission, uh, like a shared commission between the two agents. That way, in your situation, 
you can't handle those other customers right now, but if, if you allow someone else to come in and, and start working them, you're still gonna make something off of it. And I've seen, I've seen companies do that and it's worked out. Um, yeah. Let's move on. I wanna talk cash position too. So when you're gonna build yeah. an agent program, you need to make sure that you can financially handle it, okay? So think about an influx in in your sales as a brokerage, and we, we all know that when you're a freight broker, you're, one of your jobs is to be the bank for everybody in this transaction, right? You're floating the a credit line to the customer, and you're paying the motor carrier, oftentimes before you receive payment from your customer, or especially if you're gonna quick pay them, or give out a fuel advance. Mm-hmm. So you gotta make sure you have enough financial stability to be able to do this, and as you add more agents, and more business, as your agents grow and they grow their book of business, you've gotta be able to financially handle the amount of money you have to float. So that's it's really important to look. So if you're a freight broker right now, and you're already tight on your finances, you're not ready to have agents. Just flat out, you're not ready. So you gotta kinda look at what your break even is and what what you've got, like what is your what is your cost to add a new agent, you know, if, you know, and then you gotta kinda set minimums of, well, we want them to produce X amount. We want this as a minimum margin requirement. You know, stuff like that you've got to really think about. And again, the companies that are doing this very well, they've done it for many, many years. And they've they've made mistakes. And then because of their mistakes, they've learned how to correct themselves and make their make their organization and program much better. So that's your cast. So what, are, what are some – so first question I have is – I mean, well, if I have a factoring company, does that affect me? And how does that affect me? So let's yeah. say, you know, I'm running a small brokerage. I've got a handful of people on my team. I've got two or three salespeople and I want to scale. I want to scale and I want to start an agent program. If I have a factoring company, does that matter? Yeah, absolutely. Here's why. Think about your factoring company's fees and mm-hmm. what they're going to charge you in certain situations. So let's say your factoring company charges, we'll just say 3%. Okay. So if you're, you know, if you're paying 3% off the top line, that's not off your profit, that's off your revenue, right? So let's say you've got a $1,000 line haul, you're paying $30 just to the factoring company. Now let's use that same $1,000 example and say you've got an agent that does 20% margin versus 5% margin, right? I'm just gonna ask you to go through that example. Yep. Yeah, so $1,000 <laughs> at a 20% margin is $200 in profit, right? 30 bucks goes out to the factoring company and now you're down to 170, okay? Let's look at 5%. And that's, fit, by the way, that's 15% of your gross you spent on your factoring, right? And your example, right? Your, yeah. Your three well, grand, three, uh, in 30, $30 into 200 is 15%, right? Okay, yeah. So I mean, you're you, 15, you, yeah, your 15% of your gross profit went to factoring. Yep. Right off the top, So now let's right? look at the 5% example, right? $1,000, makes a 5% margin, they make 50 bucks. And hey, that's not yep. uncommon for people that move high volume, you know, low margin stuff. They'll move like steel lumber, they'll make 50 bucks a load, and they think it's all good. Well, guess what? $30 still goes to factoring, and now you've got $20 left. 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. So now you gotta think, if I'm gonna pay commission, even if you pay like a, like a low end of 50% commission, you've already lost money. 60 Because now you're $50, your you pay 25 out in commission, you don't. You only got twenty five left, and you're paying thirty in fact. So I mean, you, you got to look at. So that's why if you yep. have a factoring company, sometimes companies will they'll make the agent pay for the factoring cost. And I would tell you if you have if you're using a factoring company, you're probably not ready to bring on agents, or at least at a high at a high scaled amount. 
And that makes a lot of sense, too, because most people early on are probably operating off 9, 10, 11% early on in their career. Newer agents, they don't have those wider margins. And you're right, like there's just not enough meat left once you roll into the expenses. And I mean, that's a pretty good segue. What are some of the actual expenses that you're going to incur as the free brokerage for an agent program? Yep. Number one is obviously commission, right? You're paying out commission. And sometimes you're getting paid, they're paying out commission before you're actually receiving customer payments. And that depends on the company. If they can provide that that option to get to pay their agents ahead of time, it's a huge value add and it attracts a lot of really good, talented, big producing agents. Um, but that's a cost right there is obviously commission. Then you think about um, if you have a TMS that has a, you know, if they're going to charge you an extra cost per month to add a user, right? That's a cost. Mm-hmm. Load boards are a cost. Rating tools are a cost. GPS tracking is a cost. And you kind of add-ins are a cost and you have to decide Who's paying for it? Are we providing that to our agents? Are we eating that cost? Or are we going to ask our agents to pay for that? You know, and depending on what that looks like. So, you know, companies that provide those services included to their agents, they're going to have high standards for their agents. If you're not producing good levels of profit, if your margin percentage is not at a healthy double digit, you know, maybe 12, 15 or higher percent margin, if you're not at that level, well, we again, there's not enough meat on the bone for us to provide this to you. The agent that's making that's producing five, six, seven percent, you're not going to be able to give them, you know, the entire farm because you're not going to make you're going to lose money on them, right? And you have to look at that. So some of the other things you have to think about in addition to what I just mentioned with commissions, load boards, TMS costs, things like that. Think about bad debt, and we talked about this with uh, Matt what just a month ago, right? And talked about some of yeah. the, the things you can run into. And if a customer short pays or a customer goes out of business, or there's a claim on a load and we take a loss, who's going to pay that? That's a really big thing to think about. Now, I'm not going to tell you in this episode exactly the right way to do it because every company is different. And you've got, this is me cautioning everyone out there. If you think you want to start an agent program, develop it, you've got to think about all of these things, right? It's not just, hey, let's plug folks in. You've got to really think through this stuff. You'll get, you can get burned and, and you know, burn your brokerage to the ground off of one bad agent and one single load that where a bad decision was made. So, And that brings up another point too, right? Like, and, you know, just to throw out some examples, a lot of the pay terms are different amongst brokerages and agent programs, right? And what, what are some of the most um, common and how they go in regards to when the brokerage pays the agent? You know, upon invoice, upon delivery, yep. upon receipt of cash, what are, the, what are the main categories here? And what are the risks of each? Typically, your top agent programs that have high standards and only work with top agents, they're going to pay upwards of 70% in commission, right? They might have some sort of, you know, you've got to hit X amount of business to do that, but they're going to pay upwards of 70%. Some might even have bonuses on top of that. And they're going to pay their agents upon invoice to the customer instead of waiting until they receive funds. And then they can charge back if they need to. Like if a customer short pays, they might charge back the short pay or a percentage of the short pay or whatever the case might be. Now, Mm -hmm. I have seen a lot of agent programs out there and these are companies that are you can tell they're not financially ready to do this and they're trying to attract top talent they're paying agents and and oh back to what i was saying before 
weekly, pay, getting paid weekly for these you know top companies. And then you see these mm-hmm. not ready companies, and they're not financially stable yet, and they're paying maybe twice a month or once a month, and they're waiting until the customer has been collected on because they can't float that money, and they can't they mm-hmm. can't realize that commission expense on their books until they have the money in the bank. Or because they're using factoring, they don't have enough free cash flow to do so. And who do you attract when you offer a subprime program? You're gonna you're gonna attract subprime brokers that got or agents that got denied by the better companies, right? And what do they bring with them? Issues, trouble, claims, just you know, bad for your reputation. Mm-hmm. So, well, the other interesting I, thing is most of the w-2s are the least riskiest of the way they set up commission like i've not seen any w-2s to be honest that pay upon delivery or upon invoice like you really only see that in the agent world you don't ever see that in the w-2 model like they push all that risk right back off on their sales folks hey your customer doesn't pay they're not getting paid it's part of their business model that's where Mm -hmm. that that's where there's a difference in the w-2 and in the agent world so but it's a huge upside, right, for the agent model, right? So any of the W-2s that are ever thinking out there like, hey, you know, what are the pros and cons? And I know we've covered this on a 101 level in other episodes, but like that's a big one. I mean, yeah. being able to offset, you know, it's not all of the customer risk to your point, because if your customer doesn't pay, they can charge back. They will charge back. Some are different portions, but just the timing to be able to be incentivized to make and see cash in your bank account at the end of your week is something that's, I mean, it's really yeah. worth considering. It's, it's, so it's something that, you know, to a W-2 when they're worried about when's my next paycheck coming, if it's their first time becoming a, an agent, they can start and then get paid, you know, yeah. the next week, right? Work this week, get paid next week, just like they did at their previous job. So um, versus waiting, you know, 45 yeah. or 60 days. And I want to throw one other thing out there too, right? From like the psychology and like coaching standpoint, like, it is very hard to stay motivated for a reward that is three and four months down the road. And that's typically the case in our industry. So when you can operate in a model where you are getting rewarded literally on a weekly basis, it is much easier to stay motivated. I mean, also personally, it's way easier for me to want to go get more business knowing that what I book and deliver hits my bank account. It's not like I need it to spend, but it's still just like the reward is closer to the work. And it, it really does change things. Yep. So I want to I want to move on to some of the behind the scenes stuff because this is what can really make or break an agent based freight brokerage. So back office structure and how that interaction with the agents happens. So you've got to think, right? We're providing cash flow to the agents. So we've got to have accounting folks that are that, right you have to on the AP side, payables, right? They've got to be collecting invoices, collecting bill of ladings you know, any kind of paperwork needed to, to invoice a customer, they've got to be receiving that from the carriers, whether it's via email or snail mail or fax or upload to your a portal on your website, whatever, right? Obviously, fax and snail mail slow everything down and they're old school, but if you can have it done quickly and digitally, right, you get it in quickly and you can turn around and invoice, your, invoice the customers. Those take people and bodies that are trained to do that, right? And as you grow, you need more of those people that will do it without making errors, okay? Now, on top, you know, you're gonna have other stuff too, like someone that does claims, someone that does credit approval, someone that deals with, you know, car- the carrier side of things or issues that pop up. Now, in addition to that, how are we communicating with these folks, right? I've seen brokerages that, you know, they're so busy working their book of business, and they don't have a big enough back office, 
that they will never answer the phone for an agent, right? Everything's over email or, hey, submit a help desk ticket or whatever, right? And those mm-hmm. are, you know, that's it's kind of a trade-off. Like so, even some of these bigger companies out there, you can't just pick up the phone and call somebody. It's all over email or put a ticket in. Um, and you have to decide how this works because if you have, you know, if you have someone that's always going to be able to answer the phone or respond to a text or get back to them and help them right away, that takes bodies and staff on your back office to be able to do that, and those are expenses to you, right? And until you've scaled big enough, the cost to add an employee may or may not be worth it for you yet. So one agent is not going to be likely enough to hire one person in the back office, but 20 agents may be enough to hire one or two folks in the back office to support that growth. So it's just, it's stuff to think about. It's kind of like when we talk about just hiring in general for your brokerage, it's an investment and it mm-hmm. takes time. Um, you always want to be one step ahead. So you don't, well, let's say a new agent starts for your, your company tomorrow and they bring in a bunch of business and you don't have the back office staff, the accounting team or whatever to manage all this influx in business. Well, that agent's not going to stay with you because their stuff's going to get all messed up and it, their customers won't get invoiced and they're not getting paid and you know, all kinds of stuff happens. So you have to scale slowly and make those adjustments in how your back office operates to support your growing network of freight agents. And these are that's like a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that a, a brokerage owner doesn't think about when they're thinking, hey, I'm gonna bring on agents. And they just try to hire 10 people at once. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so let me ask you some of these things, right? So going back a couple minutes ago, you were talking about like shagging BOLs, making sure you got the paperwork to be able to invoice your customers, right? Where does that responsibility tend to fall? Is it literally on both sides? Is it a gray area for I think both it's of a sh- them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a shared responsibility. I will tell you, um, with us at Pierce, it is it, it is definitely in the best interest of our agents to track down paperwork because they're paid upon invoice, right? Mm-hmm. We can't invoice a customer until the carrier's paperwork comes in, right? So what we've done is we kind of we we try to assist the agents. So we have like automated reports that go out, and they could they could run that report manually as they want to to show all of their loads that have not been invoiced yet. If a load's more than like a week old, they know like, ah, I haven't gotten paid on this yet. This carrier hasn't sent their stuff in, right? We're not gonna, you know, we do thousands and thousands of loads, right? We're not gonna be track, we're not gonna be calling every carrier to track down paperwork. It's just, it's not realistic. I don't know any brokerage that yeah. does that. Um, but we try to we try to help out in whatever way we can, put the information in front of them. Here's the, here's the three loads that are, you know, haven't gotten paperwork for, you know, for the uh, from the carrier yet, you know, go ahead and reach out to them, type thing. So, but yeah, and you know, our, our stuff too. Like, like I said, back to to hiring, right? Who, like, uh, imagine if you don't have. I talked about the accounting side before. Like, if you don't have um, enough people to be invoicing your customers, and you've got all this business coming in, well, not only is it going to piss off your agents when they're not getting paid because their agents aren't or their customers aren't getting invoiced. The longer you take to invoice a customer, the f- longer it takes for the brokerage the to money. actually see that money and be able to yeah. run their operation and uh, you know actually earn their profit. Which is why, I, like I said before, you've got to hire and stay ahead of the pace that your company is growing, but don't overhire too fast. So, like for example, um, you know we, we've seen a lot of growth in the last couple of years at Pierce, 
And you know, we've hired folks in accounting. We've added folks to, to do you know th- that are trained in claims and carry around boarding and overriding. Um, all you know, all over the accounting side, credit side, uh, even with just you know agent development. You know, I've got I've been training um, Andrew, who's been working with me the last uh, month or so, to help me out with all the things that the agents are going through, whether it's you know bringing on a new employee and training them, going through just day to day issues that they're having. You've got to have you got to have a plan to to stay ahead of where your need is, but not spend too much money and, and overspend on back office when you don't have the you don't have the business there, you know, to to support it yet. So, so let me ask you some of this. What are some of the risks, right? Like the the larger risks, the I don't know what I don't know risks. The ones that you only see once you're doing it, right? The ones that are that have the potential to. We'll start with the ones that have the potential to bring down a whole brokerage. What are some of the things you've seen that were could be overlooked from somebody that hasn't done this yet. Um, I mean, there's there's bad agents, there's bad eggs out there. You got to weed them out. So risk is bringing in someone that's going to. I mean, we can go at the severe, and they could just be fraudulent. And I've seen that. Yeah. So start there. So how how can fraud take place in these models? Where can you? Um, Where's that opportunity? This is a real real world example. And here's two real world examples. Number one was totally fraudulent. A girl came on as an agent for a company that I used to work for, and she set up a bunch of customers, moved a bunch of fake loads that never existed, sent in fake paperwork, which then we invoiced this customer, paid out tens of thousands of dollars in commission to her, and then she ghosted us, come to find out the email address she used for the customer was not their actual email address, the customer was a real company. They had never heard of this girl before, though. So she basically set them up, got a fake line of credit, made fake, you know, doctored fake loads, sent, got fake paperwork sent in, which re- resulted in her getting paid tens of thousands of dollars of commission that was not real. And we had to get the FBI involved on her. That's a big scam. Now, a Two lesser Wait, Hold on. Real quick, real quick. Where the customers were real, the loads weren't real, right? The customer was a real company. But they were not a customer of hers. She just she picked a company that she knew would get approved for credit, and the email mm-hmm. address to send invoices to was a not their actual email. Got so it. she basically so real had company, them, fake real company, and then she had email the invoices getting sent to like a Gmail account that she had access to. <laughs> uh, Dude, I mean, which like, I mean, that's, there's thing. Well, here's the thing: you have a let's say you have a smaller mom and pop shop company. They might not have their own email domain. So you there's kind of like there's risk on all levels there. Like when you see a motor carrier that has a Gmail account, like uh, my first thought is, yeah. is this a scam or not? But then you're like, well, a lot of these small guys, they don't have, they don't have a domain. Most of my carriers so. don't. Yeah. I'm like one yeah. out of 10 probably has their own domain. But I, I another, <laughs> another example, and I've used this one before, um, in the, uh, an agent that was sloppy and did not adjust his AR properly. So, you know, he had basically his his customer's invoice amount was too high. We were paying the carrier properly. So it created a an inflated gross profit on his loads, which he got paid commission on. And then when we go to the customer and they short pay it, mm-hmm. and we've already paid commission out. And then we're like, well, this, so this happened for so long that, that, again, that was tens of thousands of dollars that this agent you can say it was fraud. You could say it was mismanagement or just sloppiness. But th- those are the risks that you take is the financial side. Now, 
other risks. Think about if you have a, an agent that comes on and starts mother effing carriers, right? Treating carriers badly, giving your company bad reviews on DAT, truck stop, Google, carrier 411, you name it, right? That's bad mm-hmm. for your brand image. Those are big risks that you have there, okay? So those are some of the big ones, you know, and you could have an agent that comes on, produces nothing, and you've spent time and money to onboard them and provide licenses and, and you know, all that support for them and you make no money, you lose money on them. So those are that's another risk right there. Well, so. And again, I mean, it's like everything in life, right? You cannot make a return without a risk. There is risk. The higher the risk, the higher the return. And I mean, like, and you see it in the W-2 model, why there's a higher return, why you end up making more and paying lower commissions, because you have a much larger risk. You're literally paying for the training and the opportunity for this person to see if they work out. Huge yeah. risk, you're gonna get, need a larger return. On the agent yep. model, you got a, lar- a lower return, but you still have risk commensurate with what you're making, like the risk to yeah. your business, risk to you not getting paid, risk to charging back and then them going MIA and having to use the legal system to try to get recourse and to get some of your money back, if that ever happens. So I'm going to I'm gonna put in here as we wrap up the agent discussion here, you know, and this goes for so many companies. Um, I'm just going to use your 80-20 rule, right? You know, like let's say 80% of, or I'm sorry, 20% of the licensed freight brokerages, freight brokerage companies that are out there are probably moving 80% of all the freight, right? So, and I'll drill that down further. Probably 20% of the agent-based brokerages or companies that have agents out there are probably moving 80% of that freight across their board or or probably have 80% there, of yeah. all the agents, right? Yeah. Because so many people, right? It's super easy to get your freight brokerage authority. It's super easy to get your real estate license, right? It's super easy to just try and hire an agent or bring on an agent, right? But if you're not doing it properly and you're not actually putting in the effort and vetting everything out pro- like the right way, you're not going to succeed, right? Which is why 20% of us are doing 80% of the business. I would I'd be willing to bet it's more, right? That's probably like 90-10. Yes. Like um, and, here, and here's the thing I want to point out. And one of the reasons why I, I wanted us to go through this discussion kind of for our audience is you and I talk about this often, right? But – in the past week, no, I would say maybe two weeks, I have talked to at least six, maybe eight different people who have wanted to start a brokerage just for an agent program. Their sole objective was like, look, I have another job. I've got five people that want to get into this industry. They'll all be agents. I'll get my license and then it will all just like run itself. Oh and, man, that's, if that's not a pyramid scheme, uh, I don't know what is. It doesn't, and, it doesn't and the other thing. And the other thing was, and I'm like, and I told every one of them, and I mean, really nice, well-meaning people. It wasn't necessarily, I don't think any one of them were trying to like get rich quick or not do the work. It was just. No, they're definitely trying to get rich quick. That's exactly what that is. I mean, maybe not to the extent of like malicious about it, but like they think in their head, this is the easy way, right? This is the easy short-term way to do things, but it'll lead to the long-term hard way of, of, oh my God, I did this the wrong way. And I would say, I would challenge you to take the hard, do the hard things now so it becomes easy later. Yeah, and and to be honest- Build your brokerage, learn how to bring on agents slowly, and then you can really develop your program. And here's the other thing, right? Even just operating in our industry, no matter where you're at in it, like the one thing that is certain is things are not going to go as planned. And I know we say this over and over again, right? 
And if you just don't intend to be the person there firefighting all these problems and making sure that as these things come up, somebody's there, like it's not going to work. Somebody has to do that job and likely multiple people to be able to get an organization off the ground and actually keep it off the ground. Yep. So good talk on agent stuff Mm -hmm. there. Send us your questions on it. If you guys have specifics, we'll try to answer them and, and upcoming stuff here. We got three good questions. First, want to give a shout out to our friends over at Lean Solutions Group. We will be doing a special video um, later this month, especially on staffing as we wrap up Q2 here. Uh, we're going to talk, and that video is going to be really about what it's really like to train or to hire and train a new employee. Um, and so Lean obviously has the Lean, Lean Staffing as one of the pillars of their organization with the, the near shore staffing model with offices down in South America. Um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to hire, you're trying to get folks onboarded uh, in, a, in an expedited manner and at a lesser cost, check out Lean Solutions Group. They've got folks down in South America that go through a rigorous training program of their own, and you can hand select the ones you think will be a good fit for you at a fraction of the cost of hiring somebody that is restricted to just your geographical area in the United States. So go to leangroup.com to learn more about them. Um, three Q&A questions today. First one. What are, and two of these come from, right from our you know contact form and one came from online. Uh, first one, what are some good tools and resources to become a successful freight broker? Pretty vague. Um, I mean, I think you need a good CRM, you need, you know, you need rating tools, load boards, a good TMS, um, some, you need knowledge and information and training. So, I mean, what, do you wanna get specific on any of that? I just say, I mean, our website. you should have, you should, yeah, go to our website. First off, I mean, we put a ton of the free resources to help guide you. I think you should have a mentor or a coach, somebody in the industry, somebody you could work under to show you the ropes. I think that's at the top of my list. You need DAT, probably definitely need also truck stop. You're going to need a CRM and you definitely need a TMS. And you're yep. going to need email and you're going to need a phone. Those are the things like you, you need definitely a phone and need, you need to be hungry. You need a hungry attitude. Dude. Yeah, I'd say at the top of that list is ambition, right? Like hungry, willing, because it, it might not be Thanks complicated. Again. It might, yeah. I mean, you're going to be dealing with rejection and it's not easy. It might be simple, but it's going to be hard and you should be prepared for that. Anything yep. in life worth having is going to be difficult to acquire. And a book of business is yep. no different. You're absolutely right. How about this one? Uh, as a driver, how can I become independent and start my own company? Uh, you chopped out on me there. Um, we're gonna we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that question again. Yeah. Did we did we wrap up the first question? Okay or no? Yeah, I thought it did. Sound okay? Yeah. Go, um, so ask that. Ask the second question, and I'll answer it. As a driver, how can I become independent and start my own company? This one's pretty straightforward. So let's say you're a company driver and you want to go out and run your own trucking company just yourself, right? You want to own your own truck, operate it yourself. Uh, The same way that brokers have to get their authority, carriers have to do the same thing. So you'd go through the FMCSA and uh, apply for your authority on their website. And there's a couple of steps required. Obviously, you've got to have insurance, um, pay an application fee, and that's it in a nutshell. So pretty straightforward. I would add a few things. I would say you probably need some accounting software, QuickBooks. You should probably have a TMS, even if it's only you, just so that you have a history of your loads, make sure they're organized. I mean, I can't tell you how many guys I know that fit that. I mean, 
I would say half of my carrier base is this, right? And when most of them started, one of the things I had to help with them a ton with is organization, making sure your invoice is lined up, making sure your paperwork is organized. So when we need something that happens from a load two weeks ago, we can access it and find it. And it's not buried in an email that you can't get to. I would say being able to access your documents and being able to do that wherever you're going to be is also pretty high on my list of things that you should be able to do. Absolutely. Can't agree with you more. Last question here. Is there a load board for shipping cars or automobiles? There is, and it's called Central Dispatch. Um, uh, that's pretty much the only one that's out there that's really, really good at shipping automobiles. But you can go on DAT and you can select auto as the as the you know the type of equipment. But Central Dispatch is a very niche load board that is very, very specific for auto haulers and brokers that have that kind of uh, that kind of business. So Central Dispatch again is the name of it. So good I question. Saw, I saw though. two of them on saw two of them on the road yesterday. There were two um, large dually diesel like Dodge Rams with an RGN in the middle of the like I guess they had a they changed the, the back the bed and the RGN was like right in the middle of their truck bed. One of them had like a camper and like an SUV on it, it had the MC on the side of the truck. Yeah. But I mean there's plenty out are, there. They're not just so the big ones. So what's unique about those ones, like you just mentioned, is they've got to like plan it out where, you know, it's kind of like they're partialing stuff up. They're going to try and get, Mm -hmm. you know, multiple vehicles on one trailer and they've got to have them loaded in the right order so they get unloaded in the right. You know what I mean? It's it's Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty it's a specific part of the market. It's definitely a niche. And I've I've met a couple of agents and brokers that are really good at it. Um, and a lot that that think they can get into it, but they, you know, it's, it's over their head. So I got a handful of friends that have done pretty well in it. It's pretty interesting aspect of the industry. Good, good episode. Um, stuff coming up. We've got, what do we got here? We've got some good videos coming out the rest of the month. Obviously we mentioned the, the, the training and hiring and training video we'll have coming out. Um, but let us know, keep sending your questions in and any episode recommendations and we'll definitely throw them into the the to-do list in the pipeline there. So any, um, any last minute thoughts or uh, just anything else? No, just, yeah. I mean, we're still pushing, um, pushing forward with the Ukrainian guardian angel fund. So if there's anybody out there that's been contemplating donating, it would all be appreciated. All of it is going directly to feed the refugees, most of which that are in Poland. They're still really, really difficult over there. So every little bit helps and all the listeners that have donated, Thank you. Keep it coming. It's been greatly appreciated. Awesome. And lastly, whether you whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.